This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, producing. the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in the very heart of the theatre, <coughs> where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all meet to create that special magic that is live theatre. The American Theatre Wing created the Tony Awards, and it is known for that, but it has an all-year-round program that is behind these prestigious awards. It was started in the First World War and continued during the Second World War. It is, in fact, the oldest ongoing organization, nonprofit, devoted to the community and serving the community through the theater. Our program is varied one. Uh, we send shows to hospitals, live, professional theater. This was started long time ago and it continues today. We support a program called Saturday Theater for Children, which indeed is an extraordinarily <coughs> wonderful program. Children line up on Saturday mornings, they commit themselves to buying a ticket, but no child is ever turned away, and seeing a show in their own school. This is a habit that we hope will last them through a lifetime so that they will go to the theater as a matter of course, as a need to see live theater, not just for the big occasion of a, an anniversary or a birthday, because theater is important to them. And then these seminars, they come out of a program for returning veterans. They came back to a school founded by the American Theater Wing so they could relearn their trade and then take it out to the schools and the hospitals. <coughs> and share it with each other. And so the seminars that we are doing here are based on that very same principle. We have a seminar on the performance and the one on play script director. Today's seminar is on the production. That brings the whole together of how it came about. And it truly is a wonderful, wonderful panel that we have. I'm going to turn this over to our co-moderators right now, and that is Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, an actress, a playwright, a director, and an author. And Ed and Wilson, who is <laughs> critic for the Wall Street Journal, 
and director of the Center for Advanced Studies in Theater Arts. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and I welcome you here this morning. Thank you, Isabel. I'd like to begin by introducing the gentleman on my far right here. Uh, he is responsible for the advertising campaign of the Broadway production of M. Butterfly. Uh, he's been doing this for a number of years. He is the director of theatrical advertising for Gray Entertainment and Media. Among many other distinctions, he is the gentleman who started the idea of theatrical live-action advertising on television with the production of Pippin. If you all remember that campaign, it was all a work of art in itself, actually, that, that television ad. Uh, Mr. Jeffrey Ash. <laughs> Next to him is the general manager for the Broadway production of M. Butterfly. Uh, he's a partner of Joseph Harris Associates. Uh, he's the general manager for Breaking the Code, Joe Turner's Come and Gone, Sophisticated Ladies, Jackie Mason's World According to Me, a list that goes on and on and on. Uh, I'll stop right there and simply give his name, Steve Goldstein. Well. And I'm very happy to introduce my old friend and colleague who is the press agent of the whole United States, if not the world. <laughs> and we're both charter members of the uh, Guild of Press Agents. And that's John Springer. And next to him is one of the most important people in show business. He's a stage manager, production stage manager. And none of us as producers or anything else in the theater could exist without his work. And he has been the uh, production stage manager for so many wonderful things. He, of course, he's now doing it for Monsieur Butterfly. But he's also been with Equus, Amadeus, Coco, Seesaw, Carmen, which was a very unusual show at the uh, Lincoln Center. And uh, must have been really quite a job to do that one. And uh, he's uh, also been, and this is very important to us at the American Theater Wing, he's been the general uh, production manager for, for the Tonys for the last five years. And uh, his name is Bob Broad. And then right next to me is a very old friend of mine, and he's the producer of Monsieur Butterfly. And uh, he has done wonderful shows that we've all loved. I remember 1776 with such affection, and Pippin, of course, which we've also just uh, mentioned. And his name is Stuart Ostro. And I'm going to begin this whole procedure by asking you, how did you first decide to do Monsieur Butterfly? Uh, it came about as a result of my new relationship with David Wong. Uh, we were uh, working on a project uh, with Philip Glass. And indeed, it's still in the making. Uh, it was a concept that I had given to Hal Prince, who agreed to direct, based on La Condition Humaine, uh, the Malraux, Man's Fate. Uh, we ran into uh, 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 
nothing but joy with each other about the collaboration. Philip had recommended that David Wong write the adaptation. And naturally, I, I wanted to know more about David, so I read all of his plays. And reading plays sometimes is a, is a very, very important test of a playwright. And I just, it, it, it flew off the page. Suddenly, I found a playwright who really was literate and had some mysticism. And I said, well, this, this great, great man. I found out he was 29 years old. And <laughs> I was sure he was a great man at that point. <laughs> and uh, we, we ran into negotiating difficulties for the rights because Andre Malraux, I'm convinced Andre Malraux is still alive in some <laughs> underground atelier <laughs> conducting negotiations through, through the French publisher, Gallimard. And for those of you who have seen the show, I, I named the character Gallimard in our play in, in affectionate tribute to the publisher who has held us up. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, the negotiations bogged down. Philip had things to do. Hal did Phantom of the Opera. And David and I were left with this uh, regard for each other. And, and we both said, let's do something together. And I said, yes, I, I, I want to do uh, something like some new musical, which I'm, I, I feel good about. And I think you can write for the musical theater. He said, fine. And we, I think simultaneously found this item in the newspapers, in the, in the New York Times, about uh, the story of the play. And David said, God, that's a wonderful subject. Let's, let's do that. And I think I can write a musical about that. I said, fine. And I commissioned him to write it. And we did the research on it. And uh, we decided only to use uh, those events that were reported in the, in the international newspaper, and David would then take off from there as a playwright to invent the story. And halfway through it, he called me. He was in France, and he said, Stuart, I'm sorry, it's not a musical, it's a play. And I said, oh. <laughs> I said, I don't want to do a play, I really... And he I said, well, read it. I said, okay. And it's a long-winded answer, but I read no. the play, and I, I was entranced by it. And, I, and like anything else that I've ever done in the theater, I had to do it. And that's what theater's all about. I just had to do it. That's the only way to do theater today, you know, when you have to do it because it's so darn difficult and so expensive that unless you fall in love and want to get married to it, you know, just don't do it. I think one of the fascinating things that, about the, this uh, opening uh, that you've told, uh, this biz, biz, what you've just told us, is the fact that there is this real collaboration between a producer and a writer. I don't think that happens as often today as perhaps it happened many years ago. Mm -hmm. is, is that your, your feeling? That's my yeah. feeling. Uh, but, you know, I was brought up uh, believing. Uh, I was Frank Lesser's apprentice, so I was brought up in that writer uh, worship era. I mean, to me, a producer is a fellow who knows a writer, really. Uh, and uh, uh, the word is always the most important thing. And if you follow that dictum, then you will uh, uh, wind up with somebody who is willing to trust you. And that's, and that's where the word collaboration yes. comes in. Look, just since on this, we're on this phase of it, when he sent you the script and you were really entranced with the script, did you then make some suggestions, give some reactions? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And which he took. So there really was a real give and take between producer and writer, even in that early okay. stage of it. That's when I knew we were, we were going to be lucky yes. because he was, it just worked. Collaboration to me is when somebody else has a better idea. Yeah. <laughs> and that is what happened. Yeah. Yes. And it was and the same way with John Dexter. It worked that way because... The, the we, director, we should... Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry, John Dexter, who directed it, it became a, a real 
love affair between the three of us because we just kept on looking for each other to top each other at and what, make it better. At what point did you bring John Dexter into the picture? After I thought that we had a completed first draft, which mm -hmm. took about a year of rewriting. By the way, I, I will say that one of the things that's remarkable about David is that David rewrites. I think we live in a first draft society yes, yes. Where, where nobody will do any rewriting, <laughs> including political candidates and everybody. <laughs> but that is, that is what made terribly it work. Because if you look at uh, the record of plays that have been successful uh, in many cases, they, the rewrites have been as important as the original Absolutely. scripts. Absolutely. Well, of course, in the old days, the producer and the writer always got together, as I remember it, and the producers knew exactly what they wanted. And when you went, uh, when you finally got the director, then the three would get together and work on the script. And when they went into rehearsal, that script was pretty nearly perfect, and they had very little rewriting to do. Uh, but those days are past because not with this play. That's precisely no, I what say, happened. That's what I mean. That, that was wonderful. You're you're a real producer of the old kind, you see. But today, most of the producers we have, I think, are money raisers. They're um, they're they're not the way you and Bob Whitehead and people like that. The old good producers are. Uh, it's a shame because it saves a lot of work and heartache. I just had a dream come true, I got to tell you. For the first time I've ever been linked with Bob Whitehead, and he's, <laughs> he, he's one of my heroes. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Well, I think it's very appropriate in this case because clearly you, where the, uh, we certainly want to get to all these other gentlemen and where they came into the picture, but just one crucial thing, it seems to me, and one very courageous thing, uh, as well as this relationship you had with the writer, which was so important, and I hope we can come back to that maybe a little later. But your decision, which is quite unusual in today's producing world, to go straight for Broadway with one, I, you were in Washington, is that where the track right. was? And that was the, rather than try to have it done perhaps in a regional theater, which most, I'd say 90% now of the plays on Broadway have probably yes. gone uh, through the route of a non-profit theater tryout. Yes. You went straight for Broadway. You, you went for all the marbles here. Yes. At what point did you decide to do that? Or was that in your mind from the beginning? From the beginning. Yeah. Uh, it just seems to me that uh, there's no place like Broadway to have a shot fired around the world if you do right. it right. And the regional theater seems to me to be uh, an appendage for producers to um, make a decision about something that they should have made a decision about before they began. They're using this workshop principle and this regional theater principle, I think, with f too few exceptions, as a way of delivering a work that has not yet been realized and of saving money, which, uh, which to seems to me to be the wrong thing to do. We're going to get to the money part, yeah. and I think we better get there fast, <laughs> because we're already in Washington, and we don't know how you got to Washington. So where do you want to start on that? Jean? Well, I think uh, we don't have to ask about the money because Mr. Ostro has always had wonderful sources, <laughs> and, uh, including his own, which is very helpful. And, uh, and uh, that's also uh, unusual today in the theater. Uh, and uh, how, how did you start? Oh, you said you commissioned the work. Yeah. 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 The, Where, when did you assemble? Cast that we have on the stage today. It took point? us about it took us about uh, eight months uh -huh. to cast the show. 
long time. What, at what when point? Did he join, oh, just he, at, at, I was just so we do get the sort of scenario in terms of the people who are with us today, because I, I think uh, it, it'll be interesting to go back and talk about the decision to go to Washington and then all the subsequent steps. But just for our uh, information, in what roughly what order did you uh, bring in the gentlemen who are with us now in terms of general manager, production stage manager, uh, advertising and publicity? Well, you, with you the remember? exception of Bob Borat, who is a new collaborator and a, and a joy, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I have had a working relationship with John Springer and uh, Jeffrey Ash and Steve Goldstein for many, many years. Uh, they've done all of my shows. So, so this is an old, we, this we, is an we've old had team, a team. We've that's had back a team. together again. Yeah. And I've just been waiting for something that I had to do. And I was fortunate enough uh, to uh, be able to call on this team, and they delivered as they usually did, except better. Yeah. <laughs> what, how did you, and, and who, who was involved in the decision to use, since you had decided to go straight, go to Broadway with one tryout, essentially, which was the National Theater in Washington? Correct, correct. How did you decide on Washington as opposed to Boston, New Haven, whatever? Well, it, the subject of the play, you know, and I'm assuming that all of you have seen the maybe play. Maybe we should, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe. I, I have no I idea. I think you have to back up, because I, I don't you, think everybody yeah. has seen it. So I have, you have to back up a bit. And I, yes, because <laughs> that, that story that you referred to that was in the New York Times, which is the basis for the play, uh, the point of departure, we really should say, for the play, Maybe you should give us uh, just a little pricey here. I would love to hear you do it. <laughs> <laughs> I've already done it. I know. <laughs> I just wanted to hear it again. <laughs> it's, it's a piece about, it's a true story, based on a true story, about a French diplomat who was uh, accused and sentenced for passing state secrets to a Chinese opera star. And this liaison had been going on for 20 years. It started in Beijing and ultimately was uncovered in Paris uh, when he was still uh, in the Foreign Service. And to everyone's astonishment, including the diplomat, it was re revealed at the trial that the Chinese opera star was not only a spy, but a man. He claimed not to have known that. And that is what the play is about. The play is about a lot of it's not only about that purient point. It's also about Orientalism, which is the most pernicious form of racism around today. It's about feminism. It's about uh, uh, sexism. It is, it's about many, many, many subjects. And it's, it was David's genius to be able to find the metaphor for all of this in the icon of uh, Puccini's opera, Madame Butterfly. Did the, sub did the subject matter have then something to do with your deciding to go to Washington to come yes, back to the point we had? Yes, it, because it seemed to me that it was an international play. Right. It was a play that dealt with an international subject. And, and indeed, if this role continues, and I, I'm hopeful that it will, uh, we will produce, I will produce versions of this in London and in Paris and in Tokyo. And indeed, there, has been, there have been already offers from those places. It is really a most theatrical kind of a play and it's wonderful and, and I'd like to know each one's role of where they started where they came in and so that we can say it starts with with Steve Goldstein right, as the Steve. general manager who who is who has the task of 
looking at me and saying, you really want to do this? That's exactly. Okay. Right, so you, did you really say that? Um, actually, no. Uh, uh, this was a play that um, uh, Stu passed along the first draft, and uh, I took it home. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't wait to turn the pages. I mean, this, this play really, really did just jump out at you. And uh, came in the next morning and said, "Let's do it. This is terrific. This is really good theater. This you is great." You stuff. said, "Let's do it." Yeah, okay. yeah. I was very excited about doing it. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how we were going to put the whole production together. It's a, it's a huge undertaking, and um, um, I, I of course, questions. I of course gave gave Stu all the warnings that you give every any producer who wants to go and do a, a straight play in today's uh, marketplace, well, you got to have your head examined. Uh, <laughs> uh, a play today, a serious drama today, is um, um, we're, in a, we're in an economy where it's, uh, the, the market is desperate. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to get, on a straight, to get a straight play on and make it work and, and get your money back. And so uh, along with any straight play come the warnings about uh, you know, you really want to do this, you, you realize what's involved. But, uh, you know, I've done four shows now with Stuart, and uh, Joe, my partner Joe Harris has been with Stu since the beginning. Um, who figures out, who figured out the budget for this show? To, you know, that's, that's the first thing that I do. You, you figured out the budget? Read the script, uh, ask Stu some, uh, some fundamental questions, and then I go, go about writing a budget. Uh, I bring it back to Stuart, and we go over it line by line and discuss. Now, is this really what you had in mind here? I'm allowing for for uh, four understudies. You think that's going to do it, or do you? You know, I've got them. I figured out that we're going to cover it this way, and Stu says no. The, the two women are too far apart in age, so we're going to have to have five understudies, and we go back and forth and. Uh, and hammer out a budget from there. What that's, but, that's, what, a crucial, that's a crucial oh, meeting. Oh, absolutely. And he does it superbly. What budget did you come up with? Uh, on, on uh, we ended up with a budget. Uh, we capitalized the show at $1.5 Which, of course, mm. is a lot for a straight It's a lot of money. Yes. Uh, of course, mm -hmm. there are a lot of costumes. It's a very elaborate set. And then you, uh, how much did you allow for the Washington tryout? Because you had to assume that that was not, uh, that well, that was going to be risky as well as the whole venture <laughs> being risky. That's the that's the one of the crazy things about the way we do budgets. Um, I've worked for for other general managers and and now I've become a general manager myself. And the fact of the matter is, we there, we don't budget for losses out of town. It makes no sense. No. It makes no sense whatsoever. You should be you've you've really got to recognize the possibility of losing money out of town. But the fact of the matter is that if you tried to budget, if you put in the kind of number that, that, that would be required to cover your out-of-town losses, uh, you'd never raise the money to do the play. Because the investors would say, well, obviously, you have no faith in the project. Look at all this money that you assume we're going to lose out of town. So, so you mean <laughs> this is not a function of reality, then? This is no, a function this is, of uh, Well, what happens is, then. yes, it's, it's a function of raising money. What happens is we, we budget a play, uh, we add a reserve, typically um, 15 to 20 percent reserve, 
above above and beyond the original the 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 hard numbers on the budget, and uh, we say that that reserve is for uh, um, cost overruns on the production side, or losses out of town, or preview losses in New York, and then we say, let's go ahead and do it, uh, and really. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We should be budgeting for out-of-town losses. But investors would, would look at that and say, you but don't you, believe in you this. Do, you yeah. do have, then, some reserve. There is a, a, there is a reserve which, in, in any In this budget. case, was yeah. what, 15, 20 percent, was it? It was just over. 50,000. Yeah, it was. 15 percent. Well, 10 no, that's 10 percent. 10 percent you had. Plus the bonds up. make it. 15. No, you're right. It, it is 15 percent with bonds. With yes. bonds make it 15 percent. Now, Jeff, when did you... Uh, Come into Probably the about the same time. Did you Steve read the script did. too? Yes, Stuart what, gave me. What was your reaction to the script? Well, I, not to be repetitive, but it was <laughs> it was the same as Steve's. Uh, I, I couldn't put it down, uh, and as I turned each page, I was dying to see what happened next. I think the fascinating thing about this play <laughs> is that it it works on so many levels, uh, and it's about so many things. As Stuart was saying. Uh, uh, male, uh, female, uh, politically, uh, racism. It's a, it's a fascinating right. play and quite a challenge to advertise and to find a, a piece of art for. Uh, when Stuart gave me the script, one of the first things that I have to do is to, f to try and find a piece of art that will then represent that play. Sort of like a logo? Or uh, yes, a exactly, a logo. Yeah. Uh, or a more elaborate piece of art, or yes. that piece of art. Uh, now, do you commission? How do you go about trying to identify that and trying to get that, well, have that created? Comes after a lot of years of experience and, and doing it and knowing. Do you do that, artists, or do you ask artists to do that? I, I ask artists yes. to do it. Uh, I think one thing Stuart brought up is that this business works only, in my opinion, as a collaborative affair and. Uh, We've known each other and worked together for a long time. And, uh, but uh, yes, I, I read the play and knew artists uh, that I thought would be appropriate and do a good job. We did about 40 pieces of art, 40 to 50 did pieces you? of art. We did. Uh, Trying to find the right thing. Uh-huh. And, 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 and did quite elaborate pieces of art and tried many of them tried to show certain parts of, uh, of the play. And we came to the realization that rather than to do that, uh, it would be better to find a logo that would represent the show and that people would bring their own connotations so, to So you really came up with the letter M and then with a, a butterfly. Right. Which is, is very simple but right. also very uh, that was arresting. Mm -hmm. We found that after we had done about <laughs> 30 or 40 <laughs> other pieces. But we knew right away right. that it answered a lot of what we wanted to do. And it, it had colors from the show, and it also had the same feel in the, in the hard edges of the M and the, the masculine, feminine, yes. and, the, and the butterfly. And we decided to use a hologram as the butterfly, which is the first time that's ever that been that's done. That that's been done. Poster. Why don't you explain what a hologram is, just in well, case? Well, I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> a, but you know, it's, a, a, uh, 
Can it's the a type of paper, this? and depending on how the light hits it, uh, the, the color changes. It's yes. like we have... It has, shimmers. A, it has an almost three-dimensional quality. It does. To it, it's yeah. like we have on our MasterCards or Visa cards. Right, type, that, you know. that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, go ahead, Jean. Yeah. I think that uh, uh, John Springer probably came in at this point, didn't he? Yes. Didn't he it, also it's a collaborate? Yes. And I should think so. I, I think one of the questions, because I think that this is a point for John yeah. to come in, that people are sometimes confused about, uh, is what the two different functions are of the press representative, the press agent, and the advertising, because they have separate functions, and yet they obviously are working for the same goal. So, right. John, maybe you could tell us. Uh, well, the press agent is the person who tries to get the best attention in the media to the project, to uh, do everything possible to to get the name of the play and the things in the newspapers, on TV, wherever, wherever there is media. Now, uh, I think we've done, if I may say so, a, a great press campaign on this, but any press agent, it isn't because we are good press agents, but you can only be as good as the project right. you're handling. This happens to be an absolute joy on which to work. Everything about it, right from the beginning. I've worked with uh, Stuart many times. The joy of working with Stuart, too, is always that he takes a very exciting, unconventional project. Stuart never does the safe, conservative, easy kind of play. <laughs> He always does something that really is, could be far out. This works. I've worked with John Dexter before. I handled Equus. The combination of those two to begin with, I had never known David Wong until I read his play. And then, as the others have said, it's just, you go, wow. And then uh, you start figuring out how you're going to... It wasn't cast then, so you couldn't say, well, you've got John Lithgow, and he's... But you, you began to realize this play is going to get attention on its own, no matter who plays it. Fortunately, John Lithgow and Brad Wong are the ideal casting, but it could have been someone else. You didn't base your publicity campaign on the stars, as is the truth. Sometimes you base it on stars, not here. Base it on everything, but the excitement of the play. I remember talking to Jeremy Gerard. I think our first major publicity a break. Writer for the New York Times. Yes, I had uh, called Jeremy to tell him that Stewart was, because uh, Stewart had been. He only comes out when he's got something terribly exciting. He doesn't just produce something for the sake of producing it. I said he's got a show. It's terribly exciting and very evolved and uh, he said and I think it deserves maybe more than just a, a nice announcement in Edith Nemi's column and uh, Jeremy said well obviously it'll have to go to Enid first and it did and Enid wrote a nice announcement piece this is in the Friday uh, New York yeah. Times yeah, that's general right announcements yes. about oh exactly that it's a, it's a column. Then, uh, Jeremy though uh, said, I promise 
that we'll do something special eventually. We've got to give the announcement to Enid. The next thing I knew, I was hoping that Jeremy might even do a, a Sunday arts and leisure piece, which would have been marvelous. Instead, it's the Sunday New York Times Magazine. Now, you can't get a better first publicity break than that. And everyone, that, that got enormous excitement and attention and everything developed from that. There have been three major stories in the Times since then. And hopefully there'll be more. But, uh, and, and, the, and the news, and the post, and the TV, and it's, we have, but as I say, it's only because we have a project, we have a, a marvelous play, a play that has grasped people's imaginations not just the press, the audiences, from the very first performance in Washington all the way through, before the critics had given them permission, the audience was jumping to their feet at the end of the show, every performance. And uh, it's a joy. Yeah, it's easy to, it's, it, it's easy and pleasant. Did you see why we get all the press? I was going to say that. Now, now we know why he's such a good press agent. You really are. Let's go to the next step then. Where do you come in? Well, I was lucky enough to get involved in this project because I've done a few shows uh, that John Dexter, the director, directed. And therefore, the, uh, I think, now I'm not sure, I think John asked Steve or the, uh, the Joe Harris office if I might be available. And I met John, and John said, I have a treat for you. And he said, read this. <laughs> and I read it, and I'll tell you, I haven't read anything <laughs> like it since, uh, since Equus, actually. Yeah. And uh, it was, I couldn't wait for it to begin. And uh, it was postponed a couple of uh, months, and I thought, well, I'll, I can't wait for this. Mm -hmm. And of course, it began, and it was just as I expected it would be. It's been a joy from the first rehearsal right to now, to hear the audience each night jump to their feet and scream bravo, yeah, and to work with the most incredible actors. Well, you're the one who works most closely with the director and the actors, obviously. Exactly. You're, yeah. you're there at every rehearsal. Every rehearsal and every performance, of yes. course. Yeah. What about rehearsals? I want to ask a, before that. <laughs> um, how did you have the great genius to get John Dexter as mm. a director? Uh, I I really knew the minute I read the play that he should direct it because oh, of my memory of Equus. I thought, it, I thought that that was a seminal production. Uh, and the, the spareness and the kind of Brechtian staging that John really won't admit to, but is, uh, <laughs> coupled with his, his uh, ability to do opera. I mean, John was the co-director of the Metropolitan Opera with the uh, with, uh, Le, uh, James Levine and did some remark. I mean, the, the dialogue of the Carmelites and, uh, and Billy Budd and, and Lulu. I mean, so the combination was irresistible. And, and as you know, as I listen to this litany, I, it occurs to me that on all of the shows that I've been lucky enough to have hits on, it's always turned out this way. It's been silk right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I feel it here right now. So I, I would guess, to come back to your question, it was an inevitable choice. And he read it called me back in two days. Two days, mind you. That's, that's remarkable. And he said, uh, now, I, I'm yours. You since know. we've moved to the director briefly, uh, because 
One of the stunning things about uh, this production is the visual effect. The scenery and the costumes and the lighting are most unusual and striking, I think. At wh whose decision was it to use a designer for costumes and sets, for example, who had never worked on Broadway before? Because that, that was a bold and, uh, I think, important decision. Well, I have to take the blame for that. <laughs> I, How did you happen to think of using a, a Japanese designer, Eiko Ishioka? Ishioka. That, uh, that, again, came out of the original uh, collaboration on Man's Fate. She was recommended by Philip Glass to be the designer. The, compo the composer. Yes, Philip yes. Glass, yeah. And I went to see a, a film that she did for Paul Schrader called Mishima. Uh, and she had done the interior dreams of Mishima, for those of you who have seen it. And they were remarkable stage settings. And I said, well, who is this person? And, and then I met her, and uh, I was enchanted by her, uh, uh, her ability to um, demonstrate what she wanted by drawing. And I thought that was the first good sign of a designer. And because of the language problem, which she was able to draw, I was much happier that way. And so was she. So then the collaboration began. And obviously she and John Dexter, the director, worked well together. Yes, yes, they did, they did. There were, there were bumps in the night, but, <laughs> but, but, but they, I mean, they worked together. Just give us, since you've described this whole thing as silk, why don't you maybe give us oh. a, one, one, one bump uh, along, I mean, what, what, in terms of stage space or look or what? Bob's about Yeah, in terms of time. Time? Yeah. For example, the kimono that we use. It's a quite wonderful, beautiful piece. And Which kimono is this? The, 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 the wedding dress. The wedding dress, yeah. In order to put one of those on, it takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes, all of the wrapping and all of that. <coughs> and um, Eiko couldn't understand why we didn't take the 25 minutes <laughs> to, to you put... You mean just stop the show? Stop the show while we wrap the... Uh, <laughs> and Velcro was a thing of, of horror to her. So. <laughs> And she kept saying, uh, well, you don't know, the Western mind doesn't understand. And we kept saying, but the show has to be two and a half hours long, not four. And that was one of the bumps that we had. Well, that, that was this, a, this brings up a question. Those kimonos were, were in fact built in Japan. And uh, we started, let's see, we were going into rehearsal in January, and uh, we... I believe we approved them the last week of August and asked Eiko to get started on them immediately um, uh, so that we could have them at the beginning of January for the beginning of rehearsal. Um, and this was number one, number one because John wanted to work with them as early as possible, <laughs> but really because I knew that no matter how many times I wrote to her, and we communicated by fax back and forth because the time difference between New York and Tokyo is 12 hours or 11 or 13, I can't keep track. Um, and uh, I kept writing, now they must be rigged for quick change. They must be rigged. And I knew that she did not understand what I meant by quick change. She was, she was going to build traditional kimonos, and she had already gone into telling us that we would have to fly an expert over from Tokyo to teach the actors all the intricate 
parts of this kimono, and I, I knew we were talking about half an hour to get into one of these things. And so my thought was, let's get them here in January, and we'll send them down to a costume shop and tear them apart and rebuild them. And um, as it happened, as it ended up, they got here about um, 10 days before the first preview. We just oh, barely, God. no matter what we did, uh, we ran into problems with uh, Japanese New Year. We ran into problems <laughs> with, <laughs> no matter what we did, they ended up getting here about they 10 are, days it, before. They are but they are stunning, stunning to look at. They're all embroidered, uh, which, which would cost us uh, $50,000 a costume to embroider them here. I want to get back to that, but did you have any problem with the unions? You were having these made in Japan. Uh, actually, no, there wasn't any problem with that. Uh -huh. uh, of course, uh, Eiko had to join uh, United Scenic Artists, uh -huh. which she had not been a member of. Previously. And there was no problem in having no. her do uh, that. What no about cost? When you say 50000 let's get into that part now. Did you go over budget? Did you stay within budget? No, uh, thanks to Steve, we stayed within budget. We had out-of-town losses, which mm -hmm. were not included in the budget, and those I covered myself. And uh, so we're, we're within budget. And one day they'll pay me back. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. So you, in other words, you were prepared to step up and uh, cover those yourself. Somebody in terms, has to. In terms yeah. of the investors and yeah. so protecting yeah. them. Yeah. But I, I do want to ask you a little bit, because the whole team must have been involved in this, because uh, there were problems in Washington, weren't there? I mean, it, it was it was a it was a phenomenon, uh, not unlike New York, the power of one paper. Yes, we had nine reviews, eight of which were in, raves. Was in, in Washington. Yeah, nine reviews, eight of which were raves, and one, which was a mixed review to to a pan, but that was the Washington in, Post. Yes, and that paper is as influential as the New York Times oh, yeah. is in New York. So, the raves were wonderful solace for those people who came to see the show on the basis of that because they could cheer if on that basis but but it it took us two to three weeks to get the word of mouth going because the washington audience stayed away they were told by the critic of the washington post that this was wasn't worth their time and when that happens now what does john do and what does jeff do when you when you do get uh, a notice in that one critical paper, despite the, the raves, that uh, what you all must spring into action, if I may well, use the term. Yes, <laughs> you do. The fascinating thing about the Washington Post, too, is that Dick Cole, who is to the Washington Post what Walter Kerr is to the New York Times, he was the critic for years and years and years. He's left and he's now critic emeritus. Emeritus, yeah. right. He loved the play. The second string critic, who would be comparable to the Mel Gusso, loved the play. Just Dave Richards, who happened to be the Frank Rich, had his problems and qualifications. Well, obviously, we did. And uh, my son, Gary, who is my partner, and uh, not nepotism just because he's that good, but uh, he <laughs> was in Washington most of the time, and he was setting up John Lithgow worked like, a, like a, a, a dog. We didn't expose Brad Wong yet. Uh, we kept him under wraps. Uh, John Dexter was terribly busy. Stuart was a little retiring. <laughs> so really, it was primarily uh, John Lithgow who did every conceivable TV show and every conceivable interview 
And uh, obviously, you've got a lot of attention, and because of the attention, the audience started coming in. And the word of mouth, you can't discount, because it is the best word of mouth play I've ever known. Since Equus, which I handled yeah. with Bob, the word of mouth is a, a, a phenomenal on this play. Jeff, what about you in terms of uh, well, we Washington? Had, we had a meeting uh, the morning after the show opened and went over all the reviews and saw that there were many other reviews that were wonderful and really said what we hoped would be said. Uh, so we had a radio spot that we had prepared in advance and we went into the studio that morning and put in quotes from the other critics and uh, bought quite a large schedule in Washington that went on right away that told people who have possibly had only seen the Washington Post that there were many other critics that, that loved this play. Did, did, did you, you, go ahead, excuse me. And did you make up a big display ad of the quotes for the paper? Did we, you put them in the post? We did. Good. We did. <laughs> so, but you did then increase the advertising in order to overcome this, this mm -hmm. one ad that was not uh, yes, all did. out, to say the least. Right. And uh, so then, in, and obviously it worked. Uh, Bob, Our business I was, uh, increased by 50% in the third week. Did, in Washington? Yeah. How many weeks were you in Washington? Four. Four, Four weeks altogether. Four and a half weeks. Four and a half. I want to ask Bob a question, because he does work closely with the directors and the actors. And uh, John Lithgow and uh, Brad, as you call him, B.D. Wong, mm -hmm. uh, both uh, have expressed the feeling that they like where they are, the theater they're in now better than the National. Yes. Could you speak to that just a little bit? Well, sure. It's, it's that uh, the O'Neill is uh, which is where it's playing where, now where in New we're York. now here in New York is a much smaller intimate theater where uh, and with our set I don't want to spoil it for the people who haven't seen it we're right out into the audience and they have a communication and a feeling that uh, the uh, audience gives back to them that they didn't get really in in Washington Washington well, was rather vast I, I said it was because of the orchestra pit well, because I think it's so difficult for an actor to get across that exactly. big orchestra pit and communicate with At the, the National Theater. Yeah, right. the National this, Theater, yes. Case, that, that musical really, house, you know. In this case, that wasn't really a problem because the, the, uh, the set know, plays the down into the, pit. The, yeah. into the but pit. But it was now. still a, a yeah. distance for um, them. They, they said themselves. Yeah, the fact of the matter is, though, that uh, it's a rather typical situation. Uh, all the theaters out of town are much larger. Um, the National is 1,672 seats. The O'Neill is uh, um, <laughs> just under 1,100. <laughs> 1,078 less But that's a rather typical situation. Um, all the road theaters are over 1,500 seats. And, uh, and it's an economic one. Uh, the, uh, it's much more expensive to have a play on the road. And therefore, you need the additional capacity uh, in the theater in order to uh, yeah. to uh, make your nut. Did you, when this situation came up in Washington, did you? What were your concerns and problems at that point? <laughs> <laughs> My concerns were, as they always are, how are we going to pay for this? Yes. Um, uh, we, when we went to Washington, we did so with the understanding that we would that there was no subscription available to us. Um, the Schuberts, uh, at that point, um, had not offered a, subscri a subscription series 
uh, for the spring of 88. And so, and if they had their, uh, even if they had, it would not have been a substantial um, number of, of subscribers. Uh, all of the subscriptions across the country, all the subscription series, uh, have really suffered in the last few years, particularly in the tryout towns, Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington. Um, it's, it's an economic issue. Um, part of the problem is that, uh, is that the big blockbuster musicals are coming in and, uh, and spending six months in a town. <laughs> Well, you can't offer a subscription series if you're going to have one play there for six or eight months. Uh, there's, there's not enough time to book in other, other, other attractions. So the, all the subscriptions, um, with the exception of Baltimore, have really gone downhill in the last few years. That, that's did another you, serious shift, then, in, mm -hmm. in the problems of producing. Isn't yes. It? Did, uh, you, did you try originally to go to Lincoln Center, the Eisenhower? The yeah, Kennedy, <laughs> Kennedy Center. Kennedy Center. Um, we... We had a lot of discussions about the Eisenhower. Um, in the end, the Eisenhower happens to be the one out-of-town theater that's 1,100 seats. Uh, although it looks and feels like a much bigger house, it's, it is in fact 1,130 seats and we felt economically it wouldn't work. Now, what a pity because it, it, you know, it, it has a sort of well, uh, following <coughs> and it seems to me that every show that goes in there it makes a profit. I, 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 I must tell you that I always had my eye on the uh, national. Uh, it seemed to me to be the right kind of medicine ball to throw around before you came into a smaller theater in New York. Mm. Uh, the Eisenhower is an odd theater. I mean, I, I, I love the fact that you have a built-in cushion with that audience that comes to the Kennedy Center no matter what. I mean, right. they come to see the, the Kennedy Center. Right. Uh, the, the Schubert's were very helpful in being able to understand my passion about uh, the National, because I had played there many, many times. Mm -hmm. I, and I, frankly, I, I thought it was a lucky theater for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and chess was to go into the National Theater. So the Schubert's couldn't give us, they couldn't fulfill their, their promise to us. So we, we did s decide to switch over to the Eisenhower. And Roger had already booked something. Oh. So, and then chess fell through, so we got back to I the How, What about choosing the O'Neill, the Eugene O'Neill Theater in New York? How, what was involved in, in that choice? You're laughing or you're smiling. I don't know. What was involved in it that? Was a, there was a serious competition between the Schuberts and Jujampson, and Jujampson won. They just loved to play more. It's as simple as that. In, in and it's nice to be loved. When you say in, that they won in terms of that they made better terms for you in yes, terms of yes. this, to, this, to yeah. make it attractive to you as a producer. What? Can I ask, what are the inducements that a producer, that a theater owner gives you? <coughs> well, the first one is the one I've just mentioned, Isabel. They're, they really care deeply about the play. And uh, that, to me, is the most pervasive argument, because I know when push comes to shove, you're going to need their help. Mm -hmm. And if they love something to begin with, then they're going to help you. And believe me, there were tough times with this piece in Washington when I asked for their help and they came through, and it was because they loved the play. I never forget Rocco saying, thank God I love this play. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very important, very important ingredient. And Can we go back to casting, because John Lithgow said that he had auditioned for you. Were there other, uh, other actors that uh, you had Well, I insist upon you? auditioning everyone. Right. Uh, and, and star and no star. How did you cast it? Uh, and John 
was was uh, as gracious as he always is. I, fi I find most right of the big stars are gracious. Yeah, yeah. They will audition. They had no they have no right. problem with those. Was things. he the first one? The first no, choice? no, he wasn't. We had we had looked many many directions. We had seen many other people. I won't tell you who it is. No, 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 I'm not interested. Dexter and along... Uh, I ha we had to, one of the big items that we had in this budget was, <laughs> was the per diems. I had to fly John Dexter in from London. I mean, it was like a shuttle. And John takes the Concorde. <laughs> I, I kept complaining because uh, uh, I realized no matter what I had in the budget under per diem, it wasn't going to be enough. And I kept complaining to Stu that he, w he just seemed to refuse to hire anyone who lived in New York. <laughs> we, had a, we had a director who lived in London. We had uh, our scenic and costume designer, we had to fly in from Tokyo. Our author... Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Both Brad and John lived in Los Angeles. And Andy Phillips lived in, in London. Uh, in London. <laughs> so yeah. it was costing us fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to have a production meeting. <laughs> it was just impossible and I, no matter what I did, Stu insisted on uh, on going ahead with had it. That, we had, uh, had that been in your budget from the beginning, or did yes, you we realize were, that we were over in that category? We were <laughs> over, but what? we had we had sufficient cushions in other areas. I was going to say, where, where did you perhaps have some savings that made up for that per diem? Well, <laughs> orchestrations for one. Yes, yeah. we had over budgeted orchestrations of thirty thousand, and the orchestrations didn't exist. Yeah, uh, uh, and we were able to use the majority of that. Good. I will so mention that. Meg Simon and Frank Cuman, uh -huh. who are remarkably attentive to the needs of this production. They are, they are casting agents. And, and they're more than that. They're very, very sensitive people who don't just send you lists. They sit and talk with you and try to make you dig as much as you can as to what your inner thoughts are about the character. Because the best time, Gene will tell you, the best time in, in the creating a play is the casting. Because yeah. you begin to learn about the play by seeing the actor read. I mean, you could, it would be a terrible mistake to have cast uh, Robert De Niro in this part, as great yeah. as he is. It would have been a dreadful mistake. Yeah. So you begin to look for those characteristics that tell you more and inform you more about what the playwright had meant. And Fran and, and Meg were wonderful in that regard. Is that the role of the casting agent now? It's, pretty much, it's, a, it's a new role of the casting agent who so. just come in. Yeah. And is that just what you described? Is that a quality that's necessary for a casting it is, it is a new role. Uh, I remember having many casting directors who just simply gave you lists. Mm -hmm. And you would choose from your own experience of having gone to see theater. Mm -hmm. Now, I still do that. But now, because I guess there aren't very many people who are producing plays who go to see theater, they use these specialists to do their thinking for them. Well, unless you meet the intelligence of the people who are working for you, then you yourself are ineffective. I think I'm lucky to have had these people because they were way ahead of me on mm -hmm. certain things that I had not seen and anticipated my own needs. And it was a good collaboration. Bob, was the chemistry good in terms of the once the cast was there, whether it was from the beginning and the rehearsal? Oh, How many weeks incredible. of rehearsal did you have? Well, we had uh, actually four. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, we began the, the uh, Peking opera segment two weeks actually before. This is training uh, training BD, BD Brad to, to for the uh, that incredible dance that he does and uh, and we started then two weeks before.
And then uh, four weeks of rehearsal. It was uh, the most incredible. The first day, we just knew that we had the chemistry, the proper chemistry. Uh, John Lithgow is an absolute prince. He is one of the most incredible actors and one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever worked with. And BD, a newcomer, is just willing to learn and to do. It's the most wonderful experience I've had in theater in a long, long time. Really. And so there were there were no cast changes, obviously. None at all. You no. were happy then from mm -hmm. from. Uh, Was well cast. To how begin many with. how That's many how many weeks or months did you spend in terms of this casting process? Eight months. Eight months. Eight That's months. a long time a long to try to find. So it was cast correctly, and when you cast correctly, then you have very few problems. As part of that process, did you try to determine that the chemistry was right between? various people, uh, clearly the two leads, you must have had them together before you actually... We were, did. Yes. We did. We did. And, it, and it was right. And that ultimately was the, was, the, was the crucial decision. I know I had decided in my own mind that John Lithgow should play the part only after I had seen him audition with Brad Wong. That's what confirmed it. So the, the, the combination is really what... The, that's of course, what I it's so for. crucial to this play, the way they play together. You had to believe that love story. You had to believe that the actor believed he was in love with a man. That was the most important thing. Whether you believe that it, that man was a, was a man or a woman was inconsequential. I think you wrote something about that. Did I? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've all had a wonderful time here now, loving each other, but you're not going to get away from just that. <laughs> because we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to be questions from the audience and questions from all of us on cost. We want to know about the costs that you've allocated for. It doesn't have to be monies, but it can be percentages on what you've allocated for the media, what you've allocated for TV. Have you done a television spot? Are you going to do one? And also that very, very nibbling question that keeps nagging question that keeps coming up. Why is the ticket price so high? And is there anything that we can do about it? So please. Take your break now. Don't go too far away and come back armed with questions. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York.
continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the production. Everything that is you need to know, I hope, will be answered on what it takes to do a show from option to opening. And the cast today is a production team of M. Butterfly, a wonderful play that's on Broadway right now. So without any further ado, we're going to go back to Jean Dalrymple and Ed Wilson, our co-moderators, who will question this wonderful panel of intelligence and information. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How about that? How about that? Uh, just before we go to the questions from the audience, which we want to get to as quickly as we can, Steve, maybe you could tell us as the general manager just broadly what uh, the categories of costs were in terms of the budget, what, what, what money goes for in terms of the uh, acting, rehearsals, mm -hmm. Uh, set costume, if you can. I mean, off. And I know you don't have any sheets with well, you, but right. broad, in broad terms. <laughs> uh, in broad terms, um, there are really, I believe, six categories, six uh, major categories in the budget. Uh, the first category is physical production. That's uh, the cost of um, scenery, costumes, uh, lighting, and sound rental, and any special effects you might have. Um, and on this production, it ran about 20% of the budget. Which would uh, be $300,000. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the next area is, uh, is uh, f what we call fees and non-refundable advances, which are the, um, uh, the fees paid to um, director, author, uh, in this case, a musical director. Uh, in the case of a musical, it would have there would have included a choreographer. Uh, ba basically, uh, the creative elements of the production, um, and that ran um, a little over uh, ten, not quite ten percent of the right. budget. Yeah. Uh, the third area would be rehearsal costs. Um, which would include uh, salaries for uh, actors, stage managers, company manager, press agent, uh, company crew, which are this, who are the stagehands that are on uh, that are on the uh, the show payroll. Um, also, uh, wardrobe, rehearsal musicians. Um, that category runs again close to 20% of the production mm -hmm. yes. cost. Uh, the next area is um, advertising and publicity, uh, which uh, is pretty obvious. That's the best part. Advertising publicity is uh, the cost of creating uh, your your uh, image and also uh, placement, uh, newspaper, radio, television, um, outdoor advertising, um, and uh, I guess that's those are the major areas um, and magazines. Uh, and that figure runs to again twenty to twenty five percent of you the budget. You don't have much left. Is that, is that, is that, is that, the, re, the, the last category is all other. I see. 
<laughs> and you tell me what I've left, what I've gotten, what I, what's left. No, I, think you've covered, I think you've covered it very, you've covered it very well. All right. And, uh, the, uh, um, in terms of, did you, do you have to make shifts as it goes along among those categories as one thing? I mean, you need more well, inevitably right? you do. Uh, you, tr you always, you, you, you write a budget and, uh, and you use the best information that you have at the time. Uh, at the time that the first budget was done for the show, as I s mentioned earlier, Stu hadn't told me that he wasn't going to hire anybody who lived in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, so. we, I forgot, we, we left out the choreographer from Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so uh, as, as time goes along, there, there are inevitably uh, shifts made in the budget. Um, I've been on other shows where they've decided to increase the, uh, the capitalization as, they, as more information becomes available as to what things are going to cost. Um, more you, often, they, you shift within the... Within how did the you all decide on what the ticket prices would be, the top price and how you would scale it? Is this completely, I mean, do you do this in conjunction with the theater or, or how, do you, how do you decide? Well, yes, you do, you do it in conjunction with the theater. Um, you, uh, you inevitably look around at what other plays or musicals are, are charging at the time. Um, and um, and uh, you, you look at your capacity and, and, and also what your costs are. Um, I have to admit that, it, that what, other, what other shows are charging, you, th there is a, there's, a, there's a very small range between, between all the straight plays on Broadway. Yes. Uh, you, you pretty much charge what the, what going, the, the going rate, yeah. what the other shows are doing. Isabel? Could I ask why you're talking about theater tickets? Could you possibly go back? Could you reduce the price of a ticket even though competitive prices are up that high? Well, in fact, we do uh, reduce the price of the ticket, but not the full ticket box office price. With the way we, we offer a number of discounts. There are a number of other ways to buy tickets for considerably less money. How? And uh, there's, there is uh, the TKTS booth, which mm -hmm. is uh, uh, we get half price for those tickets. There's an additional service charge that the that the, uh, the patron pays, but we get half price for it. Uh, there's uh, a theater development fund, which offers a, uh, a severe discount. They, their ticket price, again, we get, uh, I believe, uh, we, get a, we get $8, and I believe they charge $9.50. Uh, mm -hmm. That's... Those go to very special groups. Those though. go to very special groups, yes. yes. Groups who, uh, who wouldn't be coming otherwise. I should, we should hasten to say, mm -hmm. really, and it gives them an yeah. opportunity to an come. Opportunity to Wonderful see. audience, by yeah. the way. Wonderful, mm -hmm. intelligent, alert audience. Yeah. They're Very real helpful. theater goers. And yes. It's, it's great to have them. Um, but there are, and, uh, and uh, eventually on this play, as we go further down in the run, I'm sure that we'll do twofers, which uh, have a, um, it's, there's, there aren't any twofers today that are actually two for one. Do you they have a balcony? Adjusted price. Pardon? Do you, you have, have a balcony? Yes, mezzanine. Is it less still? Is your ticket price reduced? Yes, down to twenty twenty seven dollars. Mm -hmm. What's your top price? Forty dollars. Mm -hmm. Which is is 
lower than the top musical price by a good deal. Quite 20% lower than the top it's, of the top musical. It's still a lot of money. <laughs> no doubt about it. Well, I don't. I, I, I know you want to get into this, Isabel. I, I don't think it's a lot of money. <laughs> well, I, I think the only reason we can't get into it is it's, it would take an, an, two yes, entire panels to really yes, get into the, uh, the whole subject because it is such a... I think everybody feels that they wish prices could be reduced, and it's a historical matter for, part, for one thing. And you, have, you don't have a lot of choice as you come into the picture of what you're going to do, except the... the I think it is important to say that uh, when you look at the total picture of the theater going public, that with the TKTS booth, the half-price booth, which is a day of, you have to purchase it the day you're going to the theater, and the other uh, the group sales, that there are opportunities, that it's not just strictly the one price, right. even though you have to have an educated or public, but people who really want to go to the theater and care about it. And as you say, they frequently make the best audiences. Oh. Wonderful, just wonderful. Because they really care about going to the theater. But, but it is the, 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 the great, the regrettable thing is that for the person who doesn't know about those special situations, that there's not something between the top price and the half price, shall we say. That but, has always been a mystery to me. I mean, I served on the, on the, uh, the only comparative dilemma that I could think of is that I served on the National Endowment for five years, and we had $160 million to give out, and we had to find people to award the money to who didn't know that the money was available. It's the same principle as the theater. Yeah. Why don't they know that these half-price tickets are available? Should be organizations screaming that, and, and somehow it doesn't get down to the public. And I, it's, it's a great mystery to me. Well, I'm sure we're going to have a lot more questions other than the ticket price. And so we're going to turn this section over to questions from the audience. So would you come right up and address your question to the person you want to answer. Question is to Mr. Ostro. I'd like to know how you seduce your silent partners, the investors, in a straight show versus a musical. Is it a matter of the potential financial reward or the sense of adventure or a combination of both? One, by having previous hit shows. <laughs> that, that's the most important result that they want. They look at their record of investment with me, and if they come out having been a winner, they, they will gamble with me ever more. Is that answer? Yeah. yeah. So it's a track record, you're saying, mm -hmm. very much. In my case, I've been fortunate, I guess. My name is Cynthia Lopez. My question is directed to Mr. Ostro. How did you produce your first project? Poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, had, I was working for Frank Lesser, and we had just done How to Succeed in Business, oh. and I found a musical called We Take the Town, which I wanted to bring to the company, because we had begun a, 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 a small subsidiary company called Frank Productions. Uh, the name of the company was Frank Music Company. And uh, Frank said, no, Stuart, it's, it's really not for us. And I said, I've got to do it. It's a wonderful. It was a, it was a musical about Pancho Villa, and it starred Robert Preston. This was right after The Music Man, and he was wonderful. And, but because I was 27 years old and a novice, and because Preston said, I'll do the show with you, kid, but you've got to go into rehearsal in January, I said, okay. And I raised the money. Thank God for God at Lieberson, who believed in me in Columbia Records. And I hired my 11th choice of director, because I couldn't get the first 10, because I had to meet this obligation. And that was my failing, because by not choosing the correct director, I let everybody down. 
And when that happened, the show just fell apart. So that's, that's what happened. Thank you. My name is Rhoda Steinberg, and that ties right into my question, which is for the entire panel. What happens if after you've assembled the cast and all of you people, and you're on the road to Broadway, and you realize that this isn't going to work, it's going to be a flop, how do you call a stop to the dreams of so many people who are banking on it? <laughs> Have you ever been involved in a situation like that? Yes, many times, many times. That. Uh, I, uh, it's a terrible moment, uh, and you don't call an end to it. What you do is you see it through, and you deliver the show. And then it closes after the first night. That's correct. That doesn't help a track record, does it? No. <laughs> no. That's why you have to keep on producing. Mel Silverman, uh, for Mr. Ostro. Uh, do you have any regular procedure for scouting off off-Broadway productions and showcases for possible future productions? And uh, if so, what criteria do you use in deciding whether to pick up something? Have you ever picked up someone else's showcase? No. I, I prefer to either originate by shooting an arrow into, into, into the air, hoping that it'll fall someplace meaningful that, uh, with an author, or to encourage the author to show me his work. Uh, but I, I'm not eager to do somebody else's work. That seems to me to be the job of a theater owner or an agent. Uh, I, I love going seeing off-Broadway shows for talent and for new writing talent. But I'm not interested in doing anybody else's job. The fun is creating the show. Thank you. Mildred Clinton for Mr. Astro. As low man on the totem pole, uh, a performer, I can understand how you budget that category and several <laughs> others. But how can you possibly budget for a very special a production as this uh, before you see sketches, before you handle materials? How can you budget the amount of monies needed for these costumes that are so exquisite? Uh, 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 the this, this simple answer, which will sound terribly arrogant, is, is experience. Having gone through many, many shows, uh, you have a sense of what it should cost. And if you're a careful producer, what it should cost should be the most important determination. Because if you leave it to the people who do not have the responsibility for the money, they will give you the most outlandish prices possible. So you have to set limits based on your experience as to what it should cost, and then make sure that the artist doesn't feel threatened that the artist has the ability to express himself within that budget. Thank you. My name is Murdis Mixon, and I have a question for Mr. Ash. Can you give us some examples of when the simplest kind of advertising, either television or otherwise, works? Surely. Uh, I, I think a good example was on a show that I did with uh, Mr. Ostro, uh, Pippin. We, uh, Stuart had the guts and determination to use television as a means to advertise the theater when most producers at that point uh, were frightened to do that or not willing to commit the money to do it. We did a spot uh, for that, a very simple dance number with Ben Vereen and said, here's a free minute of Pippin uh, and let them watch it and did not put in a lot of copy and where you could get the tickets and what theater. and. Uh, but just to entice them uh, and figuring that if they're interested in that, they will then look in the newspaper to find out what they have to find out. And that was certainly a, 
a simple concept, and we are now, in, as we speak, shooting a commercial for this show, which calls on, a, which again is very simple in concept, but uh, calls on a lot of the same Jeff, things. could I ask about the Pippin commercial, which is, as I say, as I said earlier, is sort of legendary. I assume it made a lot of difference, the fact that you had Bob Fosse. Uh, did he work with the commercial? Sure. Did he sort of choreograph? Because he, he, he had such he a did. strong he visual He did, and he was very involved did. with the directing and the editing of the spot, which he is, uh, was impeccable with, as is Stuart. And, uh, I also think that from that time on, uh, television had to be reckoned with as part of advertising for the theaters. That, sure. So therefore, your budget then increased once more on, on uh, uh, adjusting to television's prices. Before that point, there was very much the feeling that people who watch television watch television and that they didn't go to the theater. Mm -hmm. And so why? Uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> and, and soon af after Pippin, we did a spot for The Wiz, uh, which brought in an entirely <laughs> new audience that had not been tapped in the black market. Can you pick up a show that is not doing well with television, with any kind of advertising? There's a show that Steve is involved in now, and, and, and Joe Turner, and you're having a problem. Would television, would advertising pick that up, or do you think that uh, you can only fan a flame fan if, it's, if it's there? You can't possibly I do build. believe that, yes. Uh, you have yes, to have you can to help. Uh, you can help a show and, and create some interest and... In, uh, mm -hmm visibility, but uh, it depends on the show. If the show's not good, the word of mouth will quickly catch up to it. Thank you. My name is Pearl Levinson, and my question is addressed to the panel. Why were ticket prices increased by approximately 1,250% from 1962 to, to the present? <laughs> I have no answer for that. Well, it, it, yeah. Where were the jumps? It has to well, be it, it's really, as we said earlier, and Steve could probably speak to this, but it's, it's historical, wouldn't you say, Steve? I mean, there have been a series of adjustments and uh, new contracts with unions. Uh, there have been huge increases in advertising costs in the New York Times. Uh, the uh, I have to, uh, television, the introduction of television, it's really no one thing. Uh, it really, it, 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 it's been a series of things which are, are regrettable. I mean, there's no question about it, and, and some of which could possibly have been prevented with hindsight. Well, it's, there are uh, really myriad reasons why the ticket price has, has jumped the way it has. Um, the fact of the matter is, however, that um, as long as I've been in the business, um, the percentage um, of, of the gross potential, in other words, in needed to break even, has stayed very close to the same number. Uh, the, uh, when I, uh, for a musical, um, it's the, that number is 65% for a straight play. It's between 55 and 60. And um, the simple fact is that, that everything is more expensive than it was in 1962. Um, certainly, we're, the, the industry is to blame um, for, for certain areas of, uh, in, uh, in the labor negotiations and costs. But on the other hand, uh, you know, everybody's got to make a living. 
um, the costs have not, the cost as a percentage of gross potential have not changed in any substantial way. There, there is one thing I have feel is, is, and you can tell me if I'm not correct about this, that, that is unfortunate in this shift because some things were unavoidable. It seems to me, if my memory is correct, that in past years there was more of a gradation, there was more of a scale of prices from top to bottom. In other mm -hmm. words, there was more out. The back of the orchestra, for example, used to cost less than the front of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. one thing we have lost yeah. that I think is unfortunate mm -hmm. in this shift of, of costs. Uh, also, uh, when you were talking about a, a nine or ten dollar ticket and the balcony was, was uh, five dollars less, that was a, a much, <laughs> a, substantial, a substantial price break. Sure. When you're talking about a fifty dollar ticket and the balcony is five or seven fifty less, it's not, it's, uh, it's not meaningful. Yes. Uh, therefore, we find today that uh, the, that, uh, the orchestra seats always sell first. That we sell out the orchestra first because there's not enough of a price break to the balcony. To, to encourage people to sit upstairs. Well, then why don't you uh, make a, a <laughs> much more of a <laughs> uh, Some shows have done that. Um, uh, even, uh, uh, I believe Les Mis still has a 15 or $16 dollar yeah. ticket in the, in the top of the balcony of the... Several shows have several had shows a $10. Have have, uh, yeah. I know Hal Prince on some of his shows has cut the and last few, few rows of the orchestra to $10. And those are always the tickets that don't sell. Because people don't want to, it's an ego thing, and they want to pay to be up front. They want to, everybody, everybody, if they're going to the theater, they want to go first class. They want that's to go, right. Right. they want to sit in the orchestra, they want the best seats. They, um, and the balcony is empty. It's the theater as an experience as, is perceived as a very special, it is a very special evening. It's an and event. And it's an event. I know a lot of people that would go upstairs to see the theater if, if the price was reduced substantially. And I think that uh, somewhere you, you've got to be able to address yourselves to that because otherwise you're just continuing this myth of the theater being a special place to go to, but only a place for special occasions, mm. and that's not going to keep the theater alive. That's what we're all arguing about. Okay. My name is David Bruin, and I'd like to address a question to Mr. Ostro and Mr. Goldstein. And would you please discuss how you divide the percentage of ownership and the way you expect as owners or producers to be repaid and when? Uh, usually it's through the, the uh, uh, process of a limited partnership, which is approved by the Security and Exchange Commission. And the limited partner is entitled, in my productions, to 50% of the profits. Uh, I, the day I give away more is the day I'm going to leave the theater. So we split 50-50 after the return of capital. So the capital is returned to the investor first, and then 50-50 profits. My name is Paul Klein, and I wanted to ask about the TV advertising. Do you aim it at a specific theater-goer or to a non-theater-goer? Depends on the uh, time whether you run the spot uh, and what you're trying to do. At first, 
you uh, project it to, uh, to all theater goers. You can certainly, uh, with different programming and times, uh, direct a, a spot to in, uh, individual groups, uh, but mostly not. There's not that big budgets available and that amount of money, so we, we try and reach mostly theater goers. Uh, my name is Mary Ballack, and my question is for Mr. Barad. What is the production stage manager's function once a show opens? What, what do you do after a show is ready to open? <laughs> well, Mary, the, the, thing, the most important thing a production stage manager does is keep the show in exactly the same condition, or at least we try to keep it uh, in the same condition that the director left it in. And that means every once in a while taking out some of the improvements that the actors put in, <laughs> uh, things like that. But that's our, uh, and also keeping the technical end of the show up, making sure that the lights stay in focus and the sets are clean and, and, uh, and ready to go each night, as if it's an opening night each night. That's really what the production stage manager does. Thank you. you do you take over the role of director in a sense, as well, when the director is not well, only, uh, actually, the understudies, yes, mm -hmm. that's our responsibility as well, to make sure the understudies are directed properly. And uh, in the event of a, of a major replacement, usually the director comes back uh, to do that. Once in a while, uh, it falls to the job of the production stage manager to do it, and the director comes in and just cleans it up at the end. Yeah. Uh, my name is Roger Hughes, and to anyone on the panel, or the panel collectively, if you had friends in town that want to see Phantom of the Opera, what do you tell them? <laughs> Go see M. Butterfly, obviously. <laughs> Aside from that. I, uh, I don't know that that could be answered by this panel, but it's, uh, it's this but, place is go but it's worth, buy But it's worth ticket. asking. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, can I say a word, uh, Isabel? The best way is to go at curtain time and just ask for one ticket, and usually there is one. Thank you. My name is Adam Sanderson. I have a question for Jeff and for John and Stuart as well. How do you see the marketing aspect of the show developing in commercial theater? I know not-for-profit is doing some more work, but for the two of you who deal mostly with reaching the actual theater-going person, how do you see that marketing side uh, developing? Do you see a need for marketing? Absolutely, yes, I do. Uh, and is it is it happening it now? Is, yes, it is. Uh, in the past, it's been done a lot on gut feelings, uh, but finally, there is quite a bit of uh, research and things that we can do, and we do with uh, questionnaires and playbills, and uh, just by responses and running uh, spots at certain times, and and how the telephone. Uh, responses are there's a there's a, a big need for because I said said the budgets are small compared to Ford and you know major. Once more, I have to interrupt so, you, and I'm I, I'm terribly sorry because again, there's much much more that we want to hear from you, and there's never enough time. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and these are the seminars on working in the theater that are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City of New York, and. Today's panel has been on the production of M. Butterfly, a wonderful show, and the producers and all the people that made it happen 
have been here today to answer the questions and to discuss what goes into the production of a show on Broadway. Thank you very much for coming.